Today I want to talk about the God of this world. The God of this world. Now a little background to 2 Corinthians. The authorship is the Apostle Paul. He wrote this most likely from Macedonia. Some scholars may go a different direction, but I believe Macedonia. It was written in A.D. 56, a roughly one year after the letter of the first Corinthians. And if you remember the first letter, the church was really struggling. It was not doing well, at least morally. And so the Apostle Paul wrote to them to straighten that situation out. The situation now in Second uh, Corinthians is that Titus had gone back to Paul and he reported that the church had repented. So in 2 Corinthians, we find a different scenario with the church. The context, and I like doing context, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 12 through 15, the Jews were blind to the gospel because they were hanging on to the law of Moses. And the Apostle Paul says, you're blind because you continue to do law rather than Christ. In 16 through 18, when salvation comes, the veil is lifted. This is very important for our text today. And I'll get into some of the uh, specifics here in just a little bit. But when salvation comes, the veil is lifted. And the main, the main issue that the Judaizers, and when we say Judaizers, we mean Jews who had not trusted in Christ but were still clinging to the law, the Judaizers accused Paul of being dishonest and failing to preach faith plus works equals salvation. That is never the case, by the way. It is not faith plus works equals salvation. It is Christ alone, and uh, we need to keep that in mind. So first of all, in verses 1 and 2, we see we share the gospel. We share the gospel, and Paul writes this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, diakoinia, diakoinia is the word for task, and it, or the word for ministry, which is the word task, also conveys the idea of serving. So the Apostle Paul, right up front here, talks about his ministry is one of a task and also serving. You remember when the Apostle Paul was called, he was saved on the road to Damascus. When he saw the great light, God blinded him. He went, he got saved, and then he disappeared for a number of years and came back. God had given him a task to preach to the Gentiles. I remember my calling quite well. Many of you know it. I've shared it many times. But my calling that God gave me was a calling to preach the gospel, to preach to the church, to pastor. Now, what about you guys out here? Well, God still has given you a calling. God has still given you a mission. I'm going to throw a bunch of spiritual gifts on you here. You can go to Romans 12. You can go to 1 Corinthians 12. You can go to Ephesians 4. And you can go to 1 Peter chapter 4. And I'm going to read you a multitude of gifts that you have in your possession. In Romans 
encouragement, giving, leadership, mercy, prophecy, service, teaching. That's just in Romans chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have administration, discernment, healing, interpretation of language, languages, prophecy, wisdom, apostle, faith, helps, knowledge, miracles, and teaching. Now, this is not an all-inclusive list. Ephesians chapter 4, apostle, well, be apostle, you have to be with Christ, so there are no apostles today. But apostle, pastor, teaching, evangelism, and prophecy. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we read serving and teaching. So here's, here's the thing, that when you're called, you are called to serve. Now, the Apostle Paul definitely had a ministry to the Gentiles. I have a ministry to preach the gospel. And that's regardless of where I'm at, by the way. But, and you have so many different opportunities to serve Christ. And the Apostle Paul is simply saying, look, our ministry is a task that has been assigned. And that's, that's our calling. We have a task given to us by God. But it's not just a task. Notice what he adds here. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. Mercy is eleo, eleo, which means to show kindness or concern for someone. I know many of you have friends. I've got a picture here for those of you that are out here, those that are inside, they're on a 10-second delay. But uh, I've got a one person uh, comforting another person. That is really a good picture of the mercy of God. See, the Apostle Paul, <laughs> there's, there's no need for pride here. In fact, we get humility. So the Apostle Paul's ministry was one in which he was called, which God called him, and which gave him by the mercy of God. Everything that we do as believers is totally based on the mercy of God. God came down and comforted us in when, when we were sinners. By the way, whatever we do for the kingdom, it is only by God's mercy that we do it. Let me remind the church this morning of Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That is all of us. He died for us. He went to the cross for us. He paid for our sin in full. He was buried and he rose again and reigns at the right hand of the Father. I had nothing to do with that. The only thing that I had to do with it was to trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. It is ultimately and always by the mercy of God. None of us are good enough to get into the kingdom of God by ourselves. We need Christ. He has to be the centerpiece of our lives. And the Apostle Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God. So, practically, this means that we don't put ourselves on a high pedestal. There's nothing within us that screams pride. What should be done in our ministries as we're living our lives and as we're doing work in the church, it is to do it with a sense of humility because none of us, none of us, me, the deacons, you, none of us 
deserve the kingdom of God. It is by the mercy of Christ that we have been given this ministry. And that's how we should view the ministry of the church as a, in, as a whole. Now he says right after that, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. In keiko, and that's one word in the Greek for lose, lose heart, it can mean to become weary. It can also mean to be lazy. But the two words that really come out here are the words become discouraged or to lose courage. A.T. Robinson translates it to lose courage. Now let me say this. For those of you that do ministry in the church and for pastors, I know I have a couple of pastor friends that watch me on Sunday. It is easy to become discouraged in ministry. Uh, let's put it this way. It's easy to become discouraged in life, right? When things aren't going your way and uh, I, I, I can't tell you how many times pastors are guilty of this. <laughs> we are. I, most times I'll stand at that window about 20 minutes before church and see how many cars are in the parking lot. And sometimes it's discouraging when I see that there's not many cars. But the, the point is that that really doesn't matter. What matters is that I bring my A game every Sunday. And that no matter how many people attend church, I do it. And let me encourage you. If you're in a ministry in the, in the, in the church today and things aren't going right, I'm going to encourage you to stay encouraged. Don't, don't lose heart. But then there's a second meaning of this word in Keiko, which I think A.T. Robinson is closer to, and that's the word to lose courage. That's probably the most dangerous part. Yes, we can become discouraged, but then we lose our courage. I remember when Moses, speaking of Moses, in the previous chapter, Moses was the lawgiver. And Moses led, led the people right up to the promised land. And then something happened. If you've read that, those verses, God, Moses goes up to, to the top of the mountain. God allows him to see the promised land. And then God takes him home. Now, here's an understudy by the name of Joshua. Joshua has been with Moses, and all of a sudden, the leadership light is thrown on Joshua. And you can imagine Joshua, God, Moses, what are we going to do? How am I going to lead? You could, you, could, uh, you could understand Joshua's apprehension. But then God tells him this in Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. And do not be discouraged. 
for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I want to tell you this morning that my, what's going on in your life, God is with you. Stand, stand firm. Do not quit. Do not give up. Keep pushing forward. God is with you in the presence of the Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts. He is with us. We keep moving forward. In days when you get out of bed and you just don't have the strength to do it, just take one foot, put it in front of the other, and keep going because God is with you. Don't quit. Don't quit. And that's what Paul says. We don't lose heart. We don't quit. Many Ministry sometimes requires courage. Practically for us, that could mean doing, a, doing ministry a different way. There's, there's, there's an old joke about Baptist churches in general, we don't change. But sometimes we need to change the way we do ministry. Sometimes the ways of the 1950s don't quite square with 2020. So sometimes we do have to change the way that we do ministry. And sometimes that takes courage on the part of the leader of that group to make the change even if there's resistance. Now, I would be the first to say that you should try to bring the ministry teams together and to move it forward. But ultimately, that leader has to make the decision to push it forward. And the Apostle Paul says, we're not going to lose heart. We're not going to quit. We're going to be courageous. And that's what I want to talk to you about or share with you this, this, this morning. And then secondly, he mentions here the truth. But we have renounced, this is the Apostle Paul in verse 2, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. This could be a reference to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, when Paul says, for we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God. So the Judaizers were saying that Paul was misrepresenting the gospel by not adding the Mosaic law or by not adding works into it and the Apostle Paul cuts him off we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways cryptos sec, uh, uh, secret knowledge I I'm gonna step out here none of the commentaries brought it up but there 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 was such a thing as um, Gnosticism Gnosticism, as the church began to grow, became full-fledged. Gnosticism teaches that you need to have a special knowledge to get to heaven. It also teaches that Christ was not really physical. He was just spiritual. And so to get to heaven, the Gnostics would say, that you have to have this special knowledge. And so I think here with this word special knowledge, it could be a reference to the Gnostic belief that only a certain group has the knowledge needed to get to heaven. The Apostle Paul says, uh-uh. Nope. That is, that, is not, that is not the truth. That is not the truth. David Garland in his commentary said this, Paul insists that unlike such con men, those that were influencing the church, he did not adjust, water down, or tamper with the gospel to stroke his listeners' egos or to avoid ruffling their feathers. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I think David Garland's correct. Let me just say this. I'm starting to realize that people don't like the truth. I've, I've arrived at that at 30 years. Uh, and, and not all mega churches, but a lot of mega churches, they water down the gospel to get people in the front door. Sin's not mentioned. Repentance is not mentioned. Uh, living a pure life is, is, is not mentioned. It's a 14-point self-help sermon. And that doesn't, that's, that is not, that is not what the gospel is. When, it, when I get in the pulpit, what you'll get from me is the truth based on what I have read in scripture. I won't water it down. I won't sugarcoat it. I won't sidestep it. I will preach it. You've heard me say that before, and it still stands. But for you guys and gals out there, and those that are watching by Facebook, it means practically, I've got a picture of two men talking here, one with, with a Bible, and he's obviously talking to the person about salvation. You need to share the truth. Eventually, they're going to have to admit that they're a sinner and that they need Christ as a Savior. You cannot omit that. And the other thing you don't do is make promises. Oh, when, when you trust in Christ, all of your problems will go away. I actually heard a guy say that. And I was like, no, no, no. When you trust in Jesus Christ, your eternal problem goes away. You're still going to have the same problems, but it's how you approach those problems is what is different. And in fact, in our culture, when you trust in Jesus Christ, you're headed for trouble because this world does not like us. This world is against us. And so, yeah, you can't make promises that are not scriptural. In this world, you will have trouble. So... Here's what happens under that scenario. When, when, we kind of not, when we kind of don't tell the truth, what happens is the first time that new believer goes out into the world and naively shares the gospel with somebody and he gets a backlash, then the promise that you made to them is not true and then the questions start to come. So just share, share the gospel. We've been over it numerous times here. And he goes on to add, but by the open statement of truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in, conscience in the sight of God. Phaneroses. That means to make something fully known. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the gospel. Got to make it fully known. You have to... It's kind of like when you get those, when you get those papers and, and they want you to sign, you better look at the fine print. <laughs> you better look at the fine print. So, the gospel in a, in a nutshell, and I've, I've got a picture here of a nutshell and, and the gospel. You could do it this way, uh, G-O-S-P-E-L. G is God created us to be with him. Of course, secondly, O, our sin separated us from God. So, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated. That's where the, that's where the problem ends. Uh, where the problem came in. The S 
Sins cannot be removed by good works. I'll be the first to say this. I work because of my salvation, not for my salvation. There's a, there's a big difference. Yes, good works are good. We should be doing those. But make no mistake, it is not about keeping your salvation or proving your salvation. The proof of your salvation came the day that you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That was it. It was done. It was finished. Now you go out and live your life. So sin cannot be overcome by doing good works. Otherwise, why did Christ go to the cross? He went to the cross because none of us are good enough to enter the kingdom of God, and we had to get our sins. And then P is paying the price for sin. Jesus died and rose again. E, everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. Let me read that again. E, everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. The day that you trusted in Christ and you met business with him, and he came into your heart and the Holy Spirit came in, you have eternal life from that point. Then the goal is to follow him the rest of your life until you see the author face to face. L, life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. That is, that's the gospel in a nutshell. Here comes the problem. So as we're sharing it, we have to realize that some are blind. Not physically but spiritually. Let's look at the unsaved. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Kalupto. Kalupto. That means to conceal something. Have you ever witnessed to somebody and they just don't get it? Maybe you've witnessed to them several times and they just don't get it. That's because there's a veil there. There's a veil. And we'll get into how to relieve, relieve that veil in, in just a minute. But here, it is something that is concealed that they're not able to see. And it's not like we're witnessing and the person doesn't get it and we go, oh well, they're just, they're blind, I'm not going to worry about it. No, that's not the Apostle Paul says, even if the gospel is veiled, meaning there's a possibility it may not be veiled, even if it is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. Only to those who don't know Jesus. Think about it. I, I heard my grandparents talk about the cross. I didn't get it. But God continued to work on me, and one day I did get it. And there were so many people along my path that, that kind of kept pushing it. And by the time the army chaplain came to talk to me, boom. I was ready to be saved, which I did. I trusted Christ. October 12, 1981. The word perishing goes back to 2 Corinthians 15, 16. Listen to this. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among to those who are perishing. So we're both. We're both an aroma to God for those who are saved and those who are unsaved. To one, an aroma from death to death. That's the unbelievers. The stench of death. 
That's what we got to remember about unbelievers. They may be alive physically, but they're dead spiritually, and it stinks. To the other, an aroma from life to life. Yeah. Here's, here's, here's the thing. Unbelievers are blind spiritually. And they are dying spiritually. I'm so grateful. I've heard a lot of stories about uh, people who get this, this coronavirus. And, and, and they're accepting Christ. Because when you start pondering your mortality, the first question that comes up into your mind is, what's beyond this? It also reveals here that there's one group of people who are saved and another group who are lost. There's nobody in the middle. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either in a relationship with Christ or you're outside of a relationship with Christ. There is no straddling the fence. You can't do that. If, if you're trying to straddle the fence, you're in the, you're in the group that's, un, that's unsaved. That's very, very plain very clear two groups of people and that's something we need to keep in mind as as we're sharing the gospel now lastly i want to talk about satan in verse four the apostle paul writes this in their case the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Why did he say the image of God? Uh, I think it goes back to the Gnostic issue where they said that he just merely appeared. Here, he's saying Christ really appeared and he was the image of God. Jesus said to see me is to see the Father. But the real issue here is the word theos. Obviously, that is a reference to God normally. But here, Theos, Satan can come as an angel of light. He can look beautiful. But the fact is, he is the un-Theos. Even though the word says Theos. James Swanson writes it this way very simply in the Dictionary of Biblical Languages. God, lowercase, a supernatural being who is not the one true God. When you are witnessing, when you are telling people about Christ... Satan is at work trying to keep them blind. That's the enemy. That's who we need to push back against. Here's, here's, here's another issue. The word blinded, to flow, means to make someone not understand. So when you're sharing the gospel and they're not getting it, then we need, we need to do something. And I say you need to attack it with prayer. Here's a second thought. We mostly practice today Reformed theology. Or Reformation theology, however you want to put it. Then there are those that are Calvinist. I am not a Calvinist at all. Here, we see it's not God that's blinding their minds. It's Satan. And I've talked with Calvinists before, and they've never had a good answer for this. 
The fact is that if we say that God is the one that blinds them, then we are attributing the works of Satan to God, and I can't go there. I can't do it. Yes, there are places in Scripture where it says, uh, I foreknew you, I, I, I chose you, I, I get that. And, and, but to stretch this to the, to the extreme to say that God is the one that blinds goes against this verse. Make no mistake, when you are sharing the gospel with somebody, you need to push back against the darkness, you need to push back against Satan, and you need, th this is how you should start your evangelistic ev event whenever, e if, if it's somebody at work, some social place you're in, uh, you preface before you say a word, this is what you should do. You should say, God, I pray that you bind Satan. This may sound charismatic, but we're in a war here, folks. Satan is hard at work trying to keep these people from understanding. So we pray, God, I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would help them to see that the Holy Spirit would be at work, and, and then share the gospel. Then share the gospel. Because the issue here is Satan wants to take as many people with him as he can. And our job is to glorify Christ and to share the gospel. And that's what we need to be about. So if there's somebody in your life that you've been sharing the gospel with and you haven't gotten any real good responses, the next time that you talk to them, before you talk to them about the gospel, this would be my pastoral recommendation. To get on your knees or to stand wherever you are and just pray. Brothers and sisters, you will not remove the blinders on your own. That is the work of God and the Holy Spirit. But to just assume that these people were destined for hell I can, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't go there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to say this. There is nobody too far gone that cannot be saved. Who's writing this letter? Paul! He was killing Christians before the road to Damascus. He was imprisoning them, killing them. We will not remove the blinders. That has to be the work of God. The evangelistic approach. Number one, remember it's a spiritual event, not just reason. Please, please remember that. It's a spiritual event. When you evangelize, it is a spiritual event. It's not just trying to say, oh, please, believe in this. Well, that's, you can point them that way, but ultimately, this is a spiritual battle. Read Ephesians chapter 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and darkness of this world. That's what we're fighting. It's not just a reason. I know Paul says it several times, come, let us reason together, but... It's not just reason here. It's a spiritual event. Keep that in mind. Secondly, attack the darkness with prayer. Attack it. 
even if it's not even evangelistic maybe something's going on in your life attack the darkness with prayer I know I'm 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 on the edge here of sounding charismatic but I'm not because I do know that there's a fight going on whatever it is in your life not just evangelism but fight the darkness with prayer don't give in don't give up thirdly ask the Holy Spirit to help John 16 8 I wonder 90 percent of our evangelism may may go better if we ask the Holy Spirit to help us and number four don't give up don't quit we don't lose heart let's Paul says he doesn't lose heart 